A crisis is defined as an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs in which a decisive change is impending. There are 44 synonyms for the word crisis. Just to name a few, emergency, situation, crossroads, head, crunch, predicament, conjuncture, juncture, time, boiling point, breaking point, clutch, zero hour, milestone, moment of truth, happening, point of no return, impasse, landmark, deadlock, turning point, last stitch, 11th hour, hole, spot, jam. Today we dig into Erickson's stages of development, the biopsychosocial model, and crisis theory. Bored yet? Don't be. I promise it'll be worth it. Let's go. This is the Show Up and Stay podcast. I'm your host, Deanne Knighton. Crisis theory first originated from Eric Lindemann in 1944. He had spent time studying a group of people who had survived a tragic fire at a nightclub. He assessed the importance of intervention and how that impacted people's ability to bounce back quickly. Not long after, around 1950, Eric Erickson, a German-American psychologist and analyst, developed his theory around the eight psychosocial stages of development. These essentially became what we understand as those pivotal moments in time of a potential identity crisis, when choosing one direction or the other could have a significant impact on our ability to develop socially in the way the world understands human development to look. Here's a quick summation for those who aren't familiar. Infancy marks an important and pivotal time frame for establishing either trust or mistrust. Early childhood, the second stage, autonomy versus shame and doubt. Stage three, play age, initiative versus guilt. Stage four, school age, industry versus inferiority. Adolescence, identity versus identity confusion. Young adulthood, intimacy versus isolation. Maturity, generativity versus self-absorption, and old age, integrity versus despair or disgust. According to Erickson, this is set up much like a staircase. You move from one to the next, unless, unfortunately, you get stuck. It's incredibly important when using this lens to keep in mind the time and space to which it is applied. Social acceptability of development has changed and altered over generations. We will all have common needs, but it's never going to be universal. There are so many circumstances that can negatively or positively influence an outcome. All must be taken into account. growing up, I was certain I was going to be a lawyer. That was because my brother-in-law was a lawyer, so it sounded like a good idea. I remember asking for a desk for Christmas. I really wanted to fill out some fake checks and stamp some things with a rubber stamp. I held on to the idea of being a lawyer for many years until I hit high school. Some bullying and self-esteem issues and boy problems came up. I started an after-school job at age 16. This was way better than social life, and I did some filing and clerical work. I landed this job through my boyfriend's mom, 
and ended up staying at that company for the next several years. People around there were doing accounting. So I kind of started to make a shift towards a different prospect for my college education. College couldn't come fast enough for me. I began my pursuit for that accounting degree. And two years into that endeavor, I had some pretty major life changes. I became completely disinterested in my coursework, and I had to take some time off from school. This included marriage and divorce between the ages of 19 and 21, as well as a decision to leave the church of my upbringing, the Latter-day Saints or Mormon church. I was still connected to my family, but things were a little bit different as it related to those relationships. I was 100% on my own financially for the first time in my life. I was in a toxic relationship. I was in the process of moving. I had credit card debt piling up and definitely not in a grounded place, attempting to make a lot of really big decisions about my life and what was next for me. I was 21 years old, but still very much in that adolescent stage. As Erickson put it, identity versus identity confusion. We've learned through more recent studies that the frontal lobe isn't fully online until age 25. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that adolescence absolutely can translate into our late teens and early 20s and beyond. I started working for a company that posted an ad in the newspaper. I started out as an assistant for salespeople, quickly learned how much those salespeople were making, and did everything in my power to make sure I was in one of those sales roles as soon as possible. And I was off to the races. Did I like sales? Absolutely not. I have social anxiety. I have self-esteem issues and bouts of depression, but I just overrode all of that out of complete necessity. I went for it based on the belief that I would make it work. I had to. This was a pivotal moment for me and for the course of my life. It set many things in motion, for better or worse. I mentioned earlier this season that I'm currently awaiting news to find out if I've been accepted into graduate school. I'm taking some prerequisite courses this semester in what I'm hoping is a sign of some positive proactivity on my part. One of the courses I'm taking is human behavior in the social environment. It's part of what inspired this episode today. I've been learning about some of the different theories and applications, and it brought up some really interesting things for me around my recovery. The story that I told is what I used in my class for an assignment that I had to do in creating a multidimensional framework analysis, essentially the tool that a social worker would use to assess where I was at at that particular stage in my life, as I described. So I studied, took a pause, and looked back at a moment in time that has and really always will continue to hold a lot of confusion for me. I hold this time and space in my mind as the turning point. The framework that I completed that addressed this particular time in my life, me at age 21, was inclusive of the biopsychosocial model. George Engel, a famous psychologist, developed the biopsychosocial model in 1970. This is a holistic view of the patient, starting with biological factors, which is also inclusive of genetics, additional findings around neuroscience and plasticity as it relates to recovery from addiction, the psychological implications, as well as the human social environment. All of this plays a part. 
this is why recovery is so complex. Treating someone for such a complex issue that crosses over a variety of different fields, requiring potentially a variety of different treatments, is really complicated for the way our system is set up. Understanding these elements is vital to figuring out how we can continue to improve success rates for people who are recovering from substance use disorder. You may be familiar with David Sheff. He wrote Beautiful Boy. This was recently made into a movie starring Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell. It's a story of a father struggling to understand his son's issues with addiction. His follow-up to Beautiful Boy was titled Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy. This is a powerful book as it relates to understanding the complexity of healing addiction, as well as some of the pitfalls in our current system. We're able to experience the process of treating addiction through the eyes of this father who's struggling to find a way to keep his son clean. Here he speaks about the issue of dual diagnosis, in particular as it relates to when addiction crosses over with other psychological factors. Many addicts who relapse, particularly those who relapse more than once, what they call serial relapsers, have what's termed a dual diagnosis. It's the presence of addiction plus one or more co-occurring psychiatric disorders. Everyone who faces addiction suffers, but those with dual diagnosis in their families suffer more. And as flawed as the treatment system is for addicts, it's worse for those suffering dual diagnosis. He then proceeds to tell us a story about one of these serial relapsers, which unfortunately doesn't end positively. He sums up this person's struggle as follows. Over the course of his life, Brian had been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, pervasive development disorder, bipolar disorder, bipolar 2 disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Brian had been given over a dozen different psychiatric medications, had seen over three dozen psychiatrists, psychologists, and addiction counselors, and had been in seven inpatient and outpatient treatment centers, plus wilderness program hospitals, and sober living houses. Despite the fact that every trained addiction expert I've spoken to insists that those with dual diagnosis must be treated for both conditions if they are ever to stay sober, very few doctors are trained to treat it and few treatment programs are equipped to help the afflicted. These rally cries are what have prompted me towards this work. My heart aches for people finding themselves their most vulnerable, having to navigate a very complicated process Maybe they have support, like David Sheff provided for his son, but maybe they don't. This is hard and complicated, even for those in the right frame of mind. But trying to imagine somebody trying to get sober, losing their coping mechanism, also dealing with undiagnosed mental health concerns, and then somehow having to try to make sure that they can figure out how to get all of the different help that they need, it's just overwhelming. When we're in the process of recovering from something as painful and traumatic as addiction, sometimes it's helpful to have this foundation. Sometimes it can feel like a call to action or a purpose or something that could maybe help pull you forward and into the next steps of long-term recovery. For some people, that's true. For others, being that close to the problem really isn't the best solution for them. It's all dependent on so many factors. 
the biology, the psychology, and the social. Hey, we'll be right back. Show Up and Stay is a 501c3 nonprofit. We're committed to supporting people recovering from substance use disorder. We have some tech, some science, but mostly just storytelling and heart. Let's get back to it. Katie calls this little jam stress jazz. If I had shown up to see myself now, Deanne that I am today, this is the biopsychosocial assessment I would have completed on myself. Biophysical information. Healthy 21-year-old, some family history of mental health issues, including depression. Biophysical strengths and hazards. Healthy body, no pressing physical medical concerns. Hazards. Poor sleep habits, poor nutrition, smoking, binge drinking, marijuana use, sexually active, abusive partner, traumatized. These would be the risks. STD, pregnancy, addiction, long-term physical side effects and risks associated with alcohol, drug use, and smoking to include but not limited to emphysema, cancer, and liver failure. Psychological information. Social traumatization and isolation from family and friends as a result of leaving the Mormon church. Married and divorced before her prefrontal cortex was fully online. She exhibits a history of anxiety and depression symptoms that have been untreated. Psychological strengths and hazards. Strengths, adaptability and determination. Hazards, depression, anxiety, trauma, isolation, mental and emotional abuse. These hazards contain the following risks. Death by suicide, addiction, increased depression and anxiety, long-term psychological effects, social information, isolated, financial issues, loss of family social connection, only social framework centered around one person, new work environment which provided opportunities to meet new people, earning ability, marketable skills, hazards, social isolation, recent loss of community, survival-based decision-making with no external input or social structure to inform decisions, loss of identity, risks, continued isolation leading to addiction, increased mental health issues and death, inability to support self, difficulty developing future relationships due to stalled social development. I like to think of this episode as the lead-in or prelude to the episode that we're going to have next week where we talk about the process of reparenting. Reading this assessment, I wrote to you as the fully formed, wait, not fully formed, uh, evolving human that I am, still working on some things, really is a bit of an exercise in a form of reparenting. It's going back to a space and time and giving myself something that would have been helpful at that point. Then it lets me know, hey, I've got your back. That was hard. We don't live there anymore. We're here now. And I've got you. So, 21-year-old Deanne, here we are. I'm going to give you a quick summary of what I discovered. Biophysical hypothesis, mental health history, 
in conjunction with substance use and social isolation, increases likelihood of potential development of substance use disorder. My psychological hypothesis, history of depression, along with abuse, social isolation, and loss of identity, increases likelihood of ongoing depressive symptoms and potential risk for suicide. Social hypothesis. Reestablishment of a healthy support system could positively impact biophysical and psychological risks. Summary or conclusion. This client needs access to mental health services, including counseling, as she works to reestablish her values, identity, and social support system, as well as to properly process the religious and relationship trauma experience. During this transition period, I was somewhere between adolescence, identity versus identity confusion, and young adulthood, intimacy versus isolation. I skipped a vital part of development that was meant to occur in my adolescence, which was connection to my evolving identity and sense of self. I attempted to enter into forced intimacy situations that were not healthy. Pride, fear, and immaturity were barriers to my ability to accept intervention at the time. Removing the social worker hat for a moment, this is the other thing I would say to 21-year-old Deanne. You are a good person having a hard time. There is nothing that you could do or say that would make me love you less. I'm with you. We've got this. To donate, please follow the link in the show notes or visit our website at showupandstay.org. If you're interested in collaboration or being a guest on the show, please send an email to info at showupandstay.org. Original music created and produced by the wickedly talented Katie Hare.